Welcome to Jawbone with Dr. J and Dr. J. I'm John Monza, professor of strategy at the Joint Advanced Warfighting School, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. John Michaelshek, professor of theory and history at JAWS. Today, John, we have uh, two great guests, and it's a perfect week to have them here. We have Major General Anders Kallert and Colonel Anders Palmgrim from the Swedish Defense Forces, and they are joining us with uh, their students from the Swedish Defense University here at the Joint Advanced Warfighting School to integrate and do a, a little exercise with, with our, our students. But it's a perfect week to have you gentlemen here because you are now on the cusp of joining the NATO Alliance. And I am super proud of your forces and, and what you're going to bring to the NATO Alliance because you will be a, a substantial gain to the readiness of NATO, to the alliance, Article 5 forces that are ready to defend your territory and add to the defense of, of others in need. So, John, any thoughts before we open it up to these two fine gentlemen? No, NATO rules. On this podcast, we've talked a lot of NATO. So welcome to the team. Yeah. So, gentlemen, go ahead and maybe I'll start with you, General. What are your thoughts now at joining the NATO alliance? In a way, I would say, finally. Finally, it happens. We have prepared for many years being part of the NATO group anyway, uh, as a partner, and a special partner as well. And now it's, it feels what's happening in the world for the moment and the security situation, it comes very natural for us to, to take part in the alliance. And it's not the Swedish defense that takes part in the alliance. It's Sweden as a whole country that uh, being a part of it. So for me, it's the natural way to step up the defense for our country. You know, it's interesting to me. I, I was first exposed, I think it was four years ago, maybe five, when your government put out that pamphlet, If War Comes, which really was uh, shocking and welcomed uh, in the NATO alliance because few allies could put out a pamphlet like that to their entire populations without their government coming under intense scrutiny. And for our listeners who don't know, this pamphlet went out to all the families uh, across Sweden telling them what to do if war comes. And it was mm -hmm. basically about resistance from the entire society, not mm -hmm. just the armed forces, if war were to come. So to me, it exemplified the political will, the national mm -hmm. will of your country to resist. And now that, on top of joining the, the NATO alliance, again, makes me think you're going to be such a, a significant gain to the readiness uh, mm -hmm. of NATO. Uh, so, Colonel, over to you. What, what are your thoughts as you join the alliance? I think the same, of course, as the general. It's uh, well, you have to agree with the major <laughs> yeah, general. Yeah, of course. So, well, so uh, but I think it's also the logic step according to the situation. There is, of course, a strategic logic to this. It's not just about a nice thing. It's, of course, uh, necessary in in many ways. Actually, we had a strategy for two hundred years to be non-aligned, but. As things are for the moment and how the world has developed, I think it's a natural step to move the strategy to be integrated into an alliance and also with the global perspective because security is not about the regional perspective, it's about the global perspective and the NATO as an alliance fits that very well. Yeah, you know, John, maybe you can jump in on this, you know, what we've been talking about 
really uh, for the last two years is this unintended consequence for Putin of his war mm. in Ukraine. And one of the most significant consequences is the, the addition of Finland and Sweden uh, into NATO. But, John, you're a war theorist. What do you, what do you have to say about that? <clears throat> Whatever Karl von Clausewitz would have said was, would have been accurate. Um, now, we've been focusing a lot on Ukraine, Russia, mm. for the last two years. In fact, it was, I think, two years ago we were doing the same exercise. The war had just kicked off. And if I remember, the prime minister gave a mm. speech that, mentioned the things you talked about it was Mm. kind of the push towards nato the world had changed and i think it just showed you how putin and again this has been in the news too nato gets some blame for putin going into to ukraine and then mearsheimer other theorists talk about an sd it's just that it's made the alliance stronger Mm. and not made it weaker um now things are still unsettled there in ukraine but with the recent additions, particularly the Baltics, things are looking a little tougher for Putin. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think uh, what it exemplifies to me is the unintended or unexpected consequences of war. So for for Putin in this case, you know, he thought he'd have a quick victory in Ukraine. Now he's had a long, hard struggle in Ukraine. We're going to talk about it in our next episode. But the substantial unification and strengthening of the NATO alliance as a result of that war was was unexpected. Um, but I think also just more operationally for NATO's northern flank, what a great thing to have Sweden and Finland shoulder to shoulder with Norway on that northern flank. It's, it's going to add so much. General, you know, what do you think about your forces uh, in combination, especially with Finland up there along that long border with Russia? It's also something that we have planned for a while. Even before we start talking about joining NATO on a political level, we had uh, a cooperation between the Nordic countries, but especially between Finland and, and Sweden, when we, we were planning operation beyond peace. So now when both countries are joining NATO, that really deepens that thought and, and that planning even more. But it's a, it's a shift of mindset for the moment, for the Swedes, I would say. We, always planned for having the fight in Sweden if the war breaks out. Now the mindset needs to be changed that we will defend Sweden in another country, in a country that will be first attacked, another NATO country. So that's a big shift and uh, we have to shape our forces, our units, so we can meet that requirement. Yeah, I mean that's what I I tried to exemplify uh, in my talk to your, your students yesterday is, I don't think a lot of our listeners know, you know, Article 3 of the Washington Treaty is you will prepare your own forces to defend your own territory, but you will also be prepared to execute Article 5 and go to help others. So I would think, you know, that shift in your forces a little bit away from homeland defense, because certainly homeland defense is still there, but but now you have to be able to deploy, and that's hard. I mean, your nation has uh, leopard tanks, and, and other heavy assets. You're an artilleryman and you have uh, self-propelled artillery. The requirements of deploying those forces, it's something you have to practice to really be able to execute in a time of, of crisis. And of course, we have already, so far, we had a lot of exercises in Finland with the heavy assets before. So it's it's a natural way for us to, to take the, the step into NATO, and, and especially when both countries does it. Seeing what happened in Ukraine, you 
have to strengthen also your national defense, even if your forces, your, your maneuver capabilities will be in other countries. We need to also be able to face the, th- the new kind of threats that, that are opposed to us, and it will be opposed to, to the civil society, even in Sweden. Mm. Yes. I also think to move forces around was part of our old war planning that we had, of course, the northern area of operation, the southern and and the east and the west. So we had to move our forces operationally within Sweden, and Sweden is quite long in that sense. So I think we have a history of moving forces, perhaps not over the Baltics, but I think that will be uh, some, there is different ways of doing that. Yeah, and Colonel, you spend a lot of time at that at your base up in the north, right, in northern Sweden. So no, I, mean, I haven't spent so much time up in the north. I've been in the yeah. south. and the, uh, <laughs> It's the general who you yeah, send up there. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the, just the, the expertise to operate in those environments. I know, like, the, the Marine Corps goes up there and, and trains yeah. with, with you folks and the, and the Norwegians uh, qu- quite a bit. But, but that's, you know, such a specialized capability to be able to operate in those extreme conditions in the far north. Exactly. It's not just a question of surviving. It's, it's a question of operating that harsh environment, uh, seeing other country coming there for the first time. <coughs> they, they're more or less focusing on, on, on surviving. Uh, so there's a big difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We talked about in uh, TH in the history portion. <coughs> Uh, the the Finn-Russian war. And there's been some interesting narratives online, social media, that the Finns won the war. But the fighting in the north in Finland, when you can uh, out-tough the, the Soviets when it comes to cold weather, that's a tough place to fight. Yeah. yeah. And also the, um, the ability to use the terrain to your yep. advantage. And during the uh, Second World War, the maneuvers on the side of the roads were limited for uh, armored forces and uh, the Finns used light infantry uh, in a way to uh, make kill boxes in yep. uh, that was in the size for the units uh, and that was the, the so-called Motley tactics uh, and that has also been incorporated in Swedish tactics. Yeah. But I think that's a great example of what you're all going to add to NATO. Mm. And one of the things that I love about Sweden joining the NATO alliance is you're going to set an example, even for long-standing mm. allies, of what right looks like. You have small forces, but but great capabilities. Uh, I think the way you use your defense budget to produce high-level, combat-ready forces with a reserve capability that is uh, that is a legitimate capability, again, kind of a whole-of-society approach. You bring all these things to the alliance that, uh, that frankly, I wish a lot of other allies uh, would follow uh, your example in, in this case. So I'm, I'm very excited. Thank you very much. Uh, I think to be able to, to be in the front line, uh, one thing, of course, we, part of NATO is one thing. That, that's really strengthening our, our security. But... Being in the front line with the capabilities, you need to work together with other nations, not just within an organization like NATO, but also bilateral. And, and we, I think that what we see and have seen between Sweden and U.S. is important for us, I think beneficial for both parties, to really stretch how far you can go in, in uh, new technology, how to implement that in, in the armed forces. So even though we are going into NATO, we have been part, a NATO country in the future, 
we still have to have bilateral agreement and work very closely to some specific partner, and U.S. is especially one of them. John, final thoughts? Before we wrap up. Tell me. We have thousands and thousands of listeners would like to know. We've talked NATO, we talked Sweden. But, John, you, with all your NATO experience, and we talked about it a little bit. It was at your talk yesterday. Uh, we talked about it at lunch. Do you have any advice to give the Swedes as they, they get into NATO here? Well, this is a tough one because, and I'm I'm not just being nice because we have these <laughs> these guests here today. Sweden is really doing those things that I wish all the allies would do, including you know conscription to get the the number of forces that are required for your defensive plans. Um, no, I think uh, you know obviously uh, I want to see more of Swedish forces, uh, but the the units that you bring together are are so strong and, and combat ready. I would just uh, you know as an American perhaps say. You know, keep your foot on the gas, to use an American expression, and, and don't let off just because now you're in the club. Continue to lead in that club and, and do the things that, that you've been doing for the last, uh, last many years before joining the alliance. And, and keep doing those things, and you will serve the allies well. General, we have a tradition, <laughs> tradition unlike any other. We ask all our students and all the JAW students right now will be getting asked this in what – we're in February now, four months. If you could be so kind, could you define your personal definition of war? Boy, talk about putting them on the spot, John. We probably could have warned them of this, uh, this question before the general sat down. It, because it sounds like a very simple question, yes. but it's a very complex question asking to And, define, Colonel, you're welcome to chime in as well. Define war. Uh, it's a tricky question. Yeah, it's here's why it's you know yeah. tricky for our students, and and we shouldn't just put these gentlemen on the spot like this. <laughs> it, what what's tough about it is, um, you know, there are new war theorists, there are folks who say like we're already at war with China yeah. because they're shaping the United Hybrid States. War. You know, John and I, I think both subscribe to the or ascribe to this school that you know war is uh, it entails violence. In order to achieve yep. a political objective, very mm -hmm. Clausewitzian. What Clausewitz said is always the default answer. Yeah, but some right folks one. now say, yep. "Oh no, it doesn't have to be violence. Yep. You know, it could be electronic warfare, or hybrid, or information campaigns." But Cyber. but for me personally, those are all things that nations or organizations do to shape the environment. Yep. But when those things are not sufficient, and they start using violence. That is when you enter into what I would describe as war. Yeah, because then without the violence part, then where I think is everything becomes war. Mm -hmm. Everything, and <clears throat> that's where I think we. So, Colonel, you've had the benefit yeah. now of seeing yeah. your your general uh, put on the spot, <laughs> and you can have the the perfect answer to follow. Yeah, as I made my um, thesis about Clausewitz's train of thought and his visions of strategy. I, of course, uh, think he has uh, many good ideas to uh, bring to the table. Um, I think war is a political decision. It is a means for your political ambition. Uh, war is this, uh, a word that brings emotions, feelings that you have to use carefully. I think the history of mankind has been a history of drawing a line between peace and war. 
and that is important for being a prosperous country, develop uh, a good society and so on. So I think it's important to have a line between the logic opposites of peace and war. But I also think I was the principal author for our military strategic doctrine in 2016, and there we made developed uh, the idea of gray zone. Uh, there is a gray zone between peace and war, uh, and the current condition with the global uh, trade flows and the and digitalization and so on makes the space between peace and war a contested area which we call the gray zone or th that we have to problematize to be to defend ourselves because it's not if you are developing a, a military strategy to defend your country you know, on the external security you immediately realize that it's tightly uh, connected to the internal security aspect with political warfare information aspects and so on and so forth so I think you have to have a holistic view of understanding peace and war together and understand how the, our current condition let us uh, make it possible for even small actors to have strategic effect in a way that perhaps wasn't possible 50 years ago. So I think it's important to have a line between peace and war, but I also think that uh, if you are going to defend yourself, you have to have the full spectrum of peace and war in mind. In one end, Clausewitz, of course, but also Sun Tzu on the other end, uh, because you don't fight a hot war, a military war, if you don't have uh, uh, divided your opponent in peace, perhaps. If we follow the Eastern tradition of making war with as less effort as possible instead of maximum effort in war, you have to understand these things together. And I think together that view makes up what war is. And I think in the end of the day you decide what is war for your benefit or for your purpose. Yeah. Again, you know, I, I am super impressed that your government was able to put out that pamphlet, you know, if war comes. Uh, but, but we had a long tradition of that, and that was a product from the Second World War. During, from the 50s and onwards, we had a part in our telephone books, the last part of the telephone books, if war comes tomorrow, what are you going to do for all the people? So that was only picking up the old tradition again with yeah, the pamphlet. I, I love that, though. You know, for, you know, I think as we look at Europeans, we don't expect... Uh, European nations to have mm. that that awareness of, of potential <coughs> conflict. And again, so this is why it's so great that you are joining this alliance, because you're going to help reinvigorate some of that uh, thinking mm. about preparing for war. General, uh, you, any I, last thoughts? You, well, like I just noticed in? that, that uh, my answer was much shorter than <laughs> the colonel's. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like he wrote his dissertation <laughs> yeah. on Clausewitz, so <laughs> exactly. it's not really fair. Yeah, so in our, to our students listening, you, you should that's a good example. And we'll have a whiteboard in for your oral comp so you can draw a line and everything will be great. So um, on that note, go NATO, read your closets. <laughs>